But the law stands there as facts right in front of us, pointing out the flaws, and we must submit to it and say, we are flawed. So there's the problem. What's the solution? Welcome to Come to Life. Our goal here is to bring the scriptures to life. That's exactly how we got our name. We started with a Bible study, and those who attended that Bible study, some had said that the scriptures were coming to life like they had never experienced before, and that's how we got our name, and that's what we hope to do each and every week is bring the scriptures to life. But not only do we hope to bring the scriptures to life to you, but in doing so, we hope that the scriptures bring life to you. See, tonight we're continuing our series in the book of Romans. It's a book where, as in all other books, the Holy Spirit utilizes the author. In the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit uses Paul as his vehicle or author to inform the church about what Christianity really is, what it means, and what we believe. The book of Romans is the most exhaustive, complete book of understanding of what Christian doctrine really is. And the Holy Spirit uses Paul to get that message across to us. And as he starts out, it's almost like he's creating an argument for why it's real, why you should believe, and what the consequences are if you don't. In chapter 1, we saw Paul making the arguments for the clarity of God's existence through nature, but also the willingness of man to suppress that truth and what the consequences of a society that suppresses that truth looks like. The type of downward spiral or self-indulgence that comes from a society that views self as the core authority rather than God. When the worldview gets shifted from God as the authority to me as the authority, then everything becomes subjective and it becomes about self-pleasure and self-indulgence instead. And we see the repercussions of that in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 2, what we see is the moral argument for the existence of God that Paul puts out there. And he points out that we all have morality. We all see objective morality pretty clearly. It's in all of us. Each and every single one of us makes moral judgments about the people around us. We blame people for things that we know are wrong. We hold grudges against people for things they do wrong to us. So we make moral judgments. We know the difference between right and wrong. And we make moral judgments about the world that, however, we ourselves don't always live up to. We have been the brunt of someone else's grudge. We have failed to live up to our own standards of judgment. And Paul points that out, and he brings us to this point where we get this clarity of understanding of if we don't even live up to our own standards, how on earth do we expect to live up to God's? And the argument continues in chapter 3. What we will see is how the Holy Spirit uses Paul to foresee objections to God or objections to this objective morality or God's judgment. What we'll see is truth that we don't like, but also resolution to the problem and the heart of the message of the gospel. So today, we'll look at those questions. The questions that the scoffers ask, the doubters, or the people who are always looking for a loophole in God's judgment. And they'll always come up with, but 
what about this? And that's the title of the message today, but what about? And Paul answers those questions, all of those questions that people have about God. And as they try to avoid judgment and search for the loophole, as they're looking to judge themselves according to their standard or have God judge them by the way they want God to judge them rather than seeing God as the moral authority. And so they ask these questions, but what about? So they're always trying to outsmart the gospel or trying to avoid the good news. Why would anybody want to avoid the good news? Because it means that you're morally responsible. And so that's what we're going to look at in chapter 3. So as chapter 3 opens up, Paul states this, What advantage then has a Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? He starts that way because in the last chapter it ends with him pointing out that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, and the physical is what the Jews seem to grasp a hold of, but they miss the spiritual aspect of it. Because circumcision is literally a cutting away of the flesh, denying the flesh to serve God. Yet, they thought because it was done, they were chosen. They didn't realize the spiritual sign of what it means to actually deny the flesh and follow the law of God. So what's the point? And the Jew looks at what Paul says, and he might say to himself, what is the point then of even being someone under the law? I'm living a stricter life than my neighbors in a godlier life than the world. Why on earth would I do this if it's still going to end up in judgment? So Paul states in, in verse 2, as he's pointing out the benefits of being a Jew, he says, much in every way, of course there's a benefit. What advantage has there been for being a Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because of them were committed, the oracles of God. What he's pointing out is, hey, this entire people, this nation of Israel. Yes, you were given this physical sign, but you were also given this beautiful duty to protect and hold on to the word of God and proclaim it to the nations. It's preserved because of you. You got to experience the relationship with God before the rest of the world because you were there to preserve his word, to preserve the law. There's a lot of benefits that come with that. One, they actually get access to the knowledge of God and who he is. Secondly, they also had some military benefits. They had some actual help in wars and in fights. Whenever they were following God's word, they received help from God because they were the ones who were protect God's revelation to the world. You got to preserve the written word of God. You had access to him before the Gentiles. You got to understand the, the one creator, the unmoved mover, the, the God of all creation, the one who stands outside of time. You knew him. You knew of him before the rest of the world. It says in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. What is Paul saying? He's, he's dealing with the arguments that people might have about God. And so he's saying, basically what's happening here is someone is saying, well, some of the Jews didn't believe in God, so why should I? And the truth is, denying truth 
doesn't change what is true. Not believing that he exists isn't going to prevent you from judgment. Stop suppressing the truth because you will still face God on judgment day. Denying truth doesn't change what is true. We live in a society that is trying to do that at every turn. We're trying to change the definition of words. We're trying to change what culture is and what things actually mean. We're living in a world where people say your truth and my truth can be different. Even if our truths contradict, that doesn't make any sense. We live in a world where people think there is no objective truth, but only subjective truth, only the way that I see it because I want to live according to my way, but that can't be true. If anyone says there is no objective truth, ask them this question, is that true? Because they have to give an objective answer. Truth has to be objective. It's a self-defeating ideal. And denying truth doesn't change what is true. In verse 5, he says, If unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, Paul writes in parenthesis. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? What's happening here is he's, you remember, he's trying to come up with the arguments that people would have for trying to deny God. What he's pointed out thus far is the continual failure of us to follow God's law and failure to measure up to it and also how God is a just God, and he will judge wickedness. And so the argument that Paul is bringing out here is he's saying, some will say, if my sin gives God the opportunity to judge righteously, then my sin glorifies God. So isn't my sin, in effect, holy because it gives God glory? And Paul says, no. (laughs) Because... If that's the case, how can God judge the world? These are the basic principles of this. You can't try to blame God because he's judging sin. You you can't say that my sin shows God's glory. Here's the deal. If there is no opportunity for evil, can anything be good? If you have no choice to commit evil, can anything be possibly good? No. No. Opportunity for evil had to exist. Unfortunately, we as humans choose it. So that means we are morally responsible for our choices that God judges. And here's the problem. If there is no consequence for evil, can God be good? Can God actually be just or righteous if there are no consequences to evil? He had to create a world with an opportunity for evil. We chose it. We chose sin. But if there are no consequences to sin, is God a good God? No. Because if there's no judgment, then it's completely unfair for those who did live mostly according to the law. We all know that to be true. We can think of examples. I'll give you one, Stalin. Do you think Stalin doesn't deserve to be judged? You know, millions of people were killed under his reign. Mao Zedong, Hitler. We know that there's objective morality and that there must be a consequence for evil. If there is not, God can't be good. And there must be opportunity for evil or nothing can be good. Verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, 
as we are just slant as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just what paul is pointing out is there have been circulating at this time when he's writing this letter straw man arguments or slanderous things said about paul because paul is concerned with the grace of god people have made up these arguments that well, since God offers grace, you might as well just do evil so that God's grace is even more abundant. And Paul never said that. And to him, he, when he writes this down and he says, those who are saying those slanderous things, their condemnation is just. God will condemn those who think that way. The point is, straw man arguments exist to avoid the reality of good theology. Straw man arguments exist to avoid the responsibility for sin and to blame God. So it basically comes down to, well, if God is so good and God is so loving, then I might as well be as bad as possible so that his love is greater. And that's just silly. God even says himself throughout Scripture that he prefers obedience to sacrifice. But when we put ourselves in the judgment chair, when we do what Eve did in the garden and we take the fruit and we say we want to be gods of our own lives, then we want to make the moral judgments and we want to tell God how to judge us. And Paul is making the point that we don't get to do that. And that sin and evil is real and consequences to those things are real and God is just and righteous and judgment will come for those. So this is really fun so far. Are you really enjoying how much I get to say judgment through the book of Romans? Paul is not kidding around. He's telling us the truth, but don't worry. Yes, it is true that judgment comes. Yes, it is true that God is just, that he is good, and that there are consequences to evil. But there's also an answer, and we'll see that as we move through this chapter. So verse 9 says, What then are we? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That's a quote from Psalm 14 where Paul is pointing out that it is written in the Hebrew Scriptures to the Jews that everyone has sinned. None have made it. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. Everyone's turned away from him. No one does good. And he even goes down the list to make his point even clearer. He says, their throat is an open tomb with tongues they have practiced deceit. Talking about how, well pe how much people lie. That's from Psalm 5. It says the poison of the asps is under their lips. That's Psalm 140. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He quotes Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Proverbs 116. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. That's Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Psalm 36. So what he's pointing out is to this group of people who might have objections to him because Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a Jew. He sat on the Sanhedrin and he has converted to Christianity and those who might have arguments against him. And he's pointing out in your own scriptures, God points out that none of us have made it. In the Hebrew scriptures, none of us are righteous. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, 
By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. What Paul is saying is the law shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. The law is not our Savior. No one's exempt from it, including God's chosen nation, the people of Israel. And so he's pointing out that the law, the law is like a mirror. The law shows you the flaws. When you look in the mirror after you wake up from a long night, sleeping, you have bedhead, you might need to put on makeup, you might have to comb your hair, you might need to brush your teeth, some things are looking out of place, you might need to shave because you've gotten a little unkempt. But in order to fix yourself up, you don't rub your hair against the mirror or your face against the mirror because it doesn't do you any good. The mirror just shows you the flaws. It doesn't have the tools to fix it. That's what the law is. The law of God is the thing that shows you the flaws. It shows you that you need a Savior. It shows you that you don't measure up to God's glory. But you can't rub your face in the Torah and expect it to fix you. It doesn't work. So, you have to admit that you're wrong. You have to admit that you don't live up to it. How good are we often at acknowledging we are wrong? Very few of us, particularly in this culture, are very good at it. In fact, in this culture of my truth and your truth, we assume that we are always right because our truth is subjective. And so if you come at me with facts that don't measure up to the truth I want to subscribe to, then it actually feels like a personal attack because you see truth as an emotional response, not as a logical thing, not as a factually based thing. But the law stands there as facts right in front of us, pointing out the flaws, and we must submit to it and say, we are flawed. So there's the problem. What's the solution? Well, Paul writes in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What he's saying is there is righteousness that can be had apart from following every detail of the law. It's found in the scriptures. It's found in prophecy. It's pointed out. Jesus fulfilled them. In our own Bible study, in our own uncaged Bible study, we've gone through several already. Genesis 3, that there would be someone who crushes the head of the serpent, but in doing so, his heel would be crushed. That sounds like the cross. In Genesis 22, we see Abraham being told to sacrifice Isaac as he heads up to the peak of Mount Moriah, and God stops him from sacrificing his son and provides a ram. Not the lamb that Abraham promised Isaac would be, and so Abraham names that place, God will provide. Turns out the peak of Mount Moriah also happens to be given another name in scripture called Golgotha. Or we might know it better as Calvary. It is the place where God provided a lamb thousands of years later for the sin of mankind, Jesus. In Isaiah 53, if you read Isaiah 53, you might even think you're reading the New Testament because it sounds so much like Jesus. And we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls that that was written well before Jesus was born. But it details the scars that he would be beaten and crushed for our sin. It details that he would be hated. All It feels like you're reading 
the Passion Week account when you're reading Isaiah 53. And if you put that along with Psalm 22 that details the crucifixion a thousand years before the crucifixion and 400 years before crucifixion was even invented, it tells you that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced, that soldiers would circle him and cast lots for his garments, which is exactly what happened at Calvary. It's written. Micah 5.2 tells us where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It's written all throughout the Old Testament points to Jesus. And Paul is saying, the law and the prophets have told us that the righteousness apart from God will be revealed. And it's revealed in Jesus. Jesus even says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. That's in John 5. In Matthew 5, he says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So how do we get righteousness if we fail to live without sin? Paul is about to tell us. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There it is. All. Everyone fallen short. All, in order to be justified, need Christ. While we might even be a decent person, even a really good person, by society standards, we are not judged by the standard of man, but in comparison to the glory of God. And when we stand in the throne room of God, there is no doubt how far apart we are from the righteousness of God. And that standard of judgment is something we all fail to live up to. But, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's the answer. And there's three key words I'm going to highlight for you. One, in that sentence, justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a declaration. It's what leads to salvation. When you are justified, you are saved. It is one of the steps of salvation. Being justified means God has declared you righteous. How can he declare you righteous if you haven't lived up to the glory of God? Through Jesus. That's justification. Justification is the first step in salvation. If you've been justified, you are saved. But if you are saved, you will receive the Holy Spirit. If you receive the Holy Spirit, he will sanctify you through the rest of your life and draw you closer and closer to God and further away from the world. And at the end, at the resurrection, when we see God at the end, we'll be glorified in our glorified bodies and salvation will be complete. But you are saved if you are justified because God has declared you righteous. How does he declare you righteous? Through redemption. Redemption means you are restored to proper ownership. In the Old Testament, there were rules. We see it in the book of Ruth, clearly. But there were Old Testament rules where if land had to be sold or if a husband died and a widow was left with land, that land would have to stay in the family. It would be considered redeemed if one of the grooms, the dead husbands, Brothers would marry the widow because then it would be restored to the family, restored to proper ownership. If you are redeemed, you are restored into the proper ownership through your relationship with God. You become part of his family, adopted into his family. 
restored to proper order. And the last word, maybe the most important, one that we don't hear often, propitiation. In other translations, you might see it as appeasement or atonement, but what is this word? Well, in Greek, it's helasterion. It's used 20 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It refers to a piece of furniture found in the tabernacle in the temple. The covering, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, called the mercy seat. See, the mercy seat was this place where once a year the high priest was able to go and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And when he did, the sins of the nation were forgiven. It's the place where the people of God were able to meet God for the redemption, for the forgiveness of their sins. The propitiation is the mercy seat. The propitiation of sins is Jesus. The helisterion, the mercy seat, is Jesus. The place where we go to meet God, to have our sins wiped away. That's what that word means. So the answer to the problem of sin is Jesus. The sacrifice on the cross satisfies the wrath of God and the judgment for sin. It's God's grace at work. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is required, not just knowledge of, but faith in. You can't just state that you believe that a chair will hold your weight. You put your faith in it when you sit on it. You can't just have knowledge of Jesus. You have to put your faith in him. You have to put your life in his hands. You have to have him bear the weight of your sin, not just know about the cross. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded by what the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or he is the God of the Jews only. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. God is the God of all. That means the gospel is meant for all, Jew and Gentile. And The law is established through God's grace because the law shows us that we need the Savior. And through the Savior, the law is uplifted because we need the Savior. So, to all the what about questions, the answer is clear. Romans 3, there is only one answer, Jesus. Otherwise, we stand before the law of God without his mercy covering the law. There's a story in 1 Samuel 6 I want to share with you really quick. I'm not going to go through it. I'm just going to explain it because we don't have time. But in 1 Samuel 6, there's something that happened. Samuel the prophet has just taken over as the judge of Israel before their time of the kings. However, before Samuel became the judge in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was taken away by the Philistines. While the Ark was away, the Philistines kept putting it in different temples throughout their land, because every time the ark visited a city, the people would get infested with rats and tumors. And so they would basically say, well, it looks like the God of Israel is stronger than the God of this city, so let's move it to a different city. Turns out the God of Israel is stronger than the God of every city, because there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. And the Philistines decided, we can't deal with this thing. 
we need to bring it back to the people of Israel. So they come up with a plan, they hook it up to two cows, and they send it off to Israel. And the cows march with the ark to the land of Israel, and it comes to a town. And a bunch of people see that the ark of the covenant is back in the land of Israel, and they rejoice. And a few people, about 70, go and they look out of excitement of the ark, and they take the mercy seat off. And when they do so, 70 people get wiped out and they die. That's a weird story. It's an odd story that doesn't make much sense until you see it in this light, until you see the truth here. Because even though these people were excited that God's presence in their eyes was back in the land of Israel, that the Ark of the Covenant was back, well, the Ark of the Covenant holds within it the Ten Commandments holds within it the basis of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, actually there. And when these 70 people looked inside the Ark of the Covenant and removed the mercy seat, they died. Why? Because they stood before the law without it being covered by God's mercy. So if we put faith in ourselves to live up to God's standard, to live up to the glory and standard of God, and we stand before the throne of God, and we say we can stand before the law of God without it being covered by his mercy, you're going to get wiped out. But the good news is that Jesus is the mercy seat. We don't have to stand before the law uncovered. We can have it covered in mercy by the blood of the Lamb which forgives us of our sins. So how do we measure up to the standard of his glory? The answer is, you need the law to be covered by his mercy. You need the mercy seat. You need Jesus. Jesus.